This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Holy Heretics, the post-evangelical podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, Christian nationalism, sexuality, gender, spiritual abuse, faith deconstruction, and how to recover from evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, activists, and writers in our quest to find a freer faith. Listen wherever you get your podcast or check us out at sophiasociety.org slash podcast. I know what you're doing. You're dialing into this show today, wondering which books have made the most impact on me. (laughs) I'm sure that's what you're thinking. So, okay, I've decided I'm going to give you five as we get into today's episode. This is very hard to do. And honestly, it always comes with a caveat because as you know, like where you're at in a particular time and place affects the way you read certain words. And so the season, the context makes a big impact on all these things too. So everything's in flux a little bit, but good grief, you're you're never going to go wrong by reading any of these books we're going to briefly mention today. So here you go. In no particular order, here are five. Well, actually, I did save the last one for a particular reason. But anyhow, let's start with this guy, Stricken by God, subtitle, Nonviolent Identification and the Victory of Christ. This is a book edited by Brad Jerzak, Michael Harden. It's full of essays by people like, oh, good grief, James Allison and Richard Rohr and N.T. Wright and Sharon Baker, Denny Weaver, on and on. I read and reread this book over the course of about two months. This would have been probably around 2016, 2017. Then I remember going back a third time a few months later and just reading the footnotes by themselves. And there are a lot of footnotes. That could be a book in and of itself with just the footnotes. But what an important time and an important book for me to read. Ultimately, after a number of other things took place and after reading this book, I became both, I guess I'd say, thrilled and horrified to discover that the God of love, the spirit that Jesus embodied, had been co-opted and assimilated by the church at large and turned into some kind of God of wrath, a different kind of God than the God that actually exists. And Girardian thinking is woven into this entire book. So that's part of the reason why it made such a big impact on me. Speaking of that, I don't even have a Rene Girard book in the top five, which is ludicrous, but I'm limiting myself to five. So what are you going to do? Yeah, so Stricken by God is something I highly recommend for everyone, especially, especially those who are trying to work through intelligent responses to a God of wrath and why did Jesus have to die and atonement and sacrifice and the crucifixion and all those kinds of really important things. Secondly, going a little bit different direction here, how about Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov? I distinctly remember what it was like when I finished this I can remember being in my bedroom, the house we were living in at the time in Phoenix. I remember closing that last page and then closing my eyes at the same time. And I had the same feeling in that moment. I remember having the same feeling that I had 
as I had the first time, I got out and went to the edge of the Grand Canyon, looked out over the expanse of that unbelievable canyon. The feeling I had at that moment was the same kind of feeling I had when I finished the Brothers Karamazov. It's just this unbelievable, beautiful work of art. There are too many things to reference, but as many, many people have done over the years, I would definitely point out the the section where the Grand Inquisitor is interacting with the Christ and the way the Christ kisses the Inquisitor at the end of that passage truly did something kind of to me and for me. And I know I'm not the only person who said that over the years about that passage. So, man, that book is very special. Number three. Now, I don't agree with everything that C.S. Lewis has to say. A lot of it, but not everything. But man, I do love his little book called The Great Divorce. This was a game changer for me. There's my, like the way I think of it, there's my pre-reading of The Great Divorce thinking about the afterlife. And there's my post-reading of The Great Divorce thinking about the afterlife. That book in particular expanded my imagination and gave me just new ways of considering what might be going on with heaven and hell. And that was really important for me at that time. Still is. Okay, moving along. I'm going to go with two here that I've read in more recent years. This one probably about four years ago, three years ago. This would be the most freshest of the books on the list. I mean that in terms of when I read them. I read them most recently. Although it's a fresh book too. It's by Catherine Keller. And the book is called The Face of the Deep a theology of becoming. Gosh, this is one of those books. I wish I could recommend everyone read it, but the problem is I know that most people wouldn't make it past a few pages because most of us haven't developed our reading skills to be able to read at the depth that she is writing. I mean, she's one of these writers that will say more in a paragraph than I can say in a couple of chapters. She is a theopoet, extraordinaire. She's a brilliant writer. And this book is stunning and in, and it's beautiful and how it weaves like the non-linear geometry of chaos with evolution, with circulatory systems, with the galaxies, with the waters of the Tahome in Genesis 1-2 with a God of love. She does it in such a way that if you actually consider what she's saying, you realize that love and God really could be this amazing expansive, nuanced, enriching spirit that's been woven into the depths of evolution all the way along. Yeah, it is It is something else. And it's something that I plan to read and reread multiple times. Okay, and number five, and the reason I'm even doing a book list today is because of my guest that you'll be able to have on in a little bit. And yes, it's no coincidence that he also lands in this list, his book, We're talking, of course, about Dr. John Caputo, or as all of his buddies call him, Jack. And we're buddies now because we did a podcast episode together. (laughs) So I've decided we're buddies. Jack Caputo's book, The Weakness of God, A Theology of the Event. This was the kind of book, I think I maybe even mentioned this in our conversation. This is the kind of book that took me a long time to read. I think for a couple of different reasons. Number one, I just didn't want to go too fast. I wanted to meditate upon it, reflect upon it. And I don't know if you know what that's like. If you're reading something really good, you're like, oh, I want to slow down and 
absorb this thing. Number two, I think is something deeper and something more psychological, probably, in the sense that what Jack was writing, what I was reading was really affecting me. Like it was so beautiful and so good and it rang so true all at the same time. I think maybe subconsciously there was something going on like, wait, what does it take to write like this? Or what does one have to go through to come to these kind of conclusions and then say them in such beautiful theopoetic language? Yeah, I don't know if I'm saying that well, but it was something like that. Like it kind of scared me because I knew that that spirit that was causing me to to even respond in that way was also inviting me to find out what it would take to both think and write like that. Not that I'm trying to write exactly like Jack Caputo and as he graciously reminds me in our conversation, I'm already onto my own style. So it's not just that as much, but more in general terms, like I, I probably realized I was being invited to just go deeper into my thinking. And it's kind of scary because as you know, to go deeper means you have to let go of some stuff. You have to be willing to step away from your presuppositions that you've already been using for quite some time to make meaning out of your life. And I think that must have all been going on when I was reading The Weakness of God. It's a really, it was a really important book for me. And again, I, I wish I could recommend it to everyone. Unfortunately, I think it's the kind of book like Keller stuff that doesn't vibe as well with the general public, not because it's not great, but because the general public probably just won't ever be able to read something like that. Super unfortunate. But then again, it makes me thankful that we're able to do podcasts and things like this where people like me can have Jack on and talk with him and break some of this stuff down. Um, Having said all of that, I still recommend that everyone read this book and all the books that I mentioned today. And there's so many others that I didn't mention. I even thought about doing an honorable mention list. But if I do that, I'm bound to leave someone out and just know we'll hit those other books at some other time. And as of this recording, Indigo, The Color of Grief is out. As you probably know, or you may know if you follow this podcast or me, I decided to release this one through the crowdfunding site, Indiegogo. So um, I launched that on a Tuesday. And within a few hours, I started to say Wednesday. Yeah, it was before Wednesday even hit. We had already funded. So I think that qualifies for a good start. Thank you, everyone, for participating. And you can still get in on it. I don't know exactly when you'll be listening to this episode. Uh, Just go to JonathanFosterOnline.com. That way you can find out the best way to access the book. Depending on where you're at, it may already be out in the Amazons and the Apples and those kinds of places. But we'll see. Either way, as of right now, I'm pretty happy about it. And it would be appropriate to mention that the book is endorsed by John Caputo and Catherine Keller, who I've already mentioned. So I got that going for me. What else What else do you really need, honestly? Okay, as I already mentioned, I have Jack Caputo on with us today. This was just an honor for me. What a great person and an amazing mind and writer. Plus, he has a fairly recent book out called What to Believe About God, 12 Lessons in Radical Theology. And hey, what if you read Paul Young's book, Lies We Believe About God, and then you followed it up with Jack Caputo's book, What to Believe About God? Wow, suppose you did that. 
you'd be uh, you'd be on the right trajectory, I think, with your theology if you did something like that. Okay, thanks everyone. I hope you get a chance to like the show, star it, share it, leave a review, and thanks so much for hanging out with me and Jack Caputo today. Peace. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, I've got my new friend, Dr. John Caputo, on the air with us, as it were. And uh, all the way, you coming from Philadelphia, somewhere in the Northeast? Just outside of uh, Philadelphia, Western suburbs, near Villanova University, which you've all heard of. I heard you say somewhere that you've, you said you made a joke about something regarding your lack of geographically moving around. And I thought that's interesting. Contrast it, contrast that with how much you've explored spiritually, but geographically you haven't moved much over the years. I've traveled uh, a lot, but I right now I'm speaking from my home outside of Philadelphia, which is about 15 miles from where both my wife and I grew up. So I am a lifelong Philadelphia, who am currently grieving over the loss to the Atlanta Braves last night of the Philadelphia Phillies, which I was gonna, they should have. Yeah, which I was gonna they should have won. They should have. Now, you're are you more of a baseball guy then, or a football, basketball? Um, my people of my generation tend to be baseball fans. Mm-hmm. You know, when we when I was growing up, baseball was it, and football was just sort of getting going, and basketball was even farther behind. So we're we're all um, most most people in my generation are uh, deeply yeah uh, embedded in baseball, but yeah. you know I've gotten interested. I, I mean I'm a Philadelphian, so I root for all the Philadelphia teams. Absolutely. And uh, even when I was uh, I took early retirement and went to Syracuse, uh, I lived I continued to live here, and I was okay. commuting to Syracuse. Syracuse Syracuse it was a direct nonstop between Philly and Syracuse. So I would just fly back and forth, and uh, I never moved uh, the family or myself. I've always <laughs> – I went to Villanova in 1962 to get my M.A. and came back to teach in 1968, and I stayed there all my uh, – uh, basically all my career. And I took an early retirement to do the Syracuse thing because the Syracuse thing was interesting. Uh, it was an invitation to uh, – teach, I had taught all my life in the philosophy department at a Catholic university, okay? And I had an invitation to teach in a religion department in a secular university. So it was a complete change of menu. And it was a, it was a post, it was an early retirement position, you know, if, that I took for seven years. So I wasn't, if it was, uh, if I had been younger and it meant changing my whole life and leaving Philadelphia and leaving Philadelphia, I wouldn't have done it. Um, and it was a department with a tradition of doing radical theology. The, I, the person I succeeded had died prematurely at the age of 57, a guy named Charles, Charles Winquist. He's a friend of mine. And um, I, I, took that, I took that position. Um, the reason I even knew about the position really was, was through him. And so it was, a, it was a unique opportunity, but it was, you know, I, even then I, I stayed put in, in Philadelphia, which was my, my roots, my home. Well, I mean, I traveled all over. I was constantly on the road. I'd be going out the door and my wife would be saying, where are you going now? <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. I didn't mean to imply that you, I know that you've been around and, uh, but just, it's always, it's interesting. We've, 
we've kind of moved our home spot a couple three times but we're back in Kansas City now and that's kind of where our roots are but some of my oh, that's good. some of my early memories speaking of Philadelphia are getting the newspaper and flipping to the back sports page and scrolling down to the box scores of the Philadelphia 76ers when Julius Irving was in town because I was a I was a Dr. J fan not unlike most people my age probably yeah. around that time and, you know, NBA wasn't on TV back then, which is hard to imagine. And I would scroll and read all the how many shots he made and how many he attempts. And and uh, so that's it wasn't yeah. on TV. Huh? Well, yeah, you know, right? the, the playoffs would have been and maybe special games. This would have been like late 70s, early 80s. But way advent, you know, way before the advent of the hey. proliferation of all the sports content nowadays. So, but yeah, that's my. Philadelphia sports connection, I guess. Okay. Well, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. Anyhow, uh, man, it's just really, really great to connect with you. And and I, I never would have imagined I would have gotten this opportunity. So really thankful for for just being able to hang out for a few minutes this morning. And um, I mean, I definitely want to ask a little bit about what to believe, 12 brief lessons in radical theology. That is your most recent work. But I mean, good grief. You have dozens of works. And um, I'm embarrassed to say that I've not read more than probably four or five. I think Weakness of God uh, is probably the most. Yeah, given your interest, uh, I would say if, if there were, if I had to save one book from the fire, you know, the Inquisition came after me and they only allowed me one book and they were going to burn the rest. In, in terms of. Is that how the Inquisition works, by the way? You get to keep one? No, <laughs> no, that's my own hypothesis. <laughs> okay, you know, it's a, it's a, the books. I, the book I would say from the fire if I had to. Mm-hmm. That I think the weakness of God would probably be the, the one. I think that's probably where I've gotten the thing, yeah, comp- the most comprehensively and carefully worked out. Um, Can I ask you? And um, then from there, I you know, I, every the stuff that comes after everything leads up to that, and then the stuff that comes after it flows from it. Okay. I think that was where I sort of got it, get my line down. Um, I don't know if you can relate to this, but when I read that book, um, which probably was about five years ago, I don't know if you're like this, but when I read something that really grabs my attention, and that book really grabbed my attention, I it actually took me longer to read. Um, I kept setting it down rather than finishing it straight because I think, well, I don't know why exactly. I either, I think I was nervous about it. I think there was something about it that, um, not in a bad way, I was so excited about it that, um, and it was changing, helping change so many of my thoughts that um, it was a little bit unsettling. Can you relate to that? I mean, or is that just me? (laughs) I can, and I'm, I'm, I'm touched to hear what, what you say. I, I don't do that, actually. When I've got something, I just keep reading it, and then I go, th- then I start and do it again. I read it again mm-hmm. to get, get make sure I've got it. But what you're doing, actually, is more meditative, more um, mm-hmm. assimilative. You sort of let it, let it sink in. Yeah, um, that's probably what's happening. But yeah. yeah, there there are many styles, but um, that is where... 
You know, it was interesting. I was, it was, I rewrote, the book was too long. The Indiana University Press said it was 200,000 words. And they said, they had this form letter, you know, whenever they accept one of my books, they say, thank you very much. We're going to, we intend to publish this, but you need to shorten it by uh, 15%. And <laughs> it's just got a, that's a form letter they use for me. Yeah. And so I had to cut it down and I decided to cut it down carefully instead of just lopping something off i just decided to go through it paragraph by paragraph and it occurred at the very time that i was transitioning from villanova to syracuse so i was transitioning from a philosophy department to a religious department i was transitioning from a catholic university to a secular university so i decided actually i have to say that, that, I, that i always exercised a certain amount of caution when i taught at villanova not because the authorities, the administration of Illinois would, would, would come after me, but it's quite the opposite. The administration is quite liberal and progressive. I, and I was just sort of worried about keeping the archbishop off their back. You know, the archbishop could go after, the cardinal archbishop would, could go after the president uh, if, if I said something that got too much attention that was too egregious. And uh, but this at that point when I was rewriting the Wheaton Scott, I was retiring from Villanova, and so I just sort of let it all out, and I I I I made the expression, the formulations as bold as I wished, and um, so the rewrite actually was not just shortening it, but it was actually emboldening it, and um, that that's in part because I was. Going to a secular university. Yeah. When we got to the secular university, when I got to Syracuse, they sort of thought of me as the theologian in in town. Because so much of secular religion departments these days are basically anthropological or historical or sociological um, uh, enterprises. And I was close, I was like the theologian. And it's when it's when Catherine said, "You'll remember this." On the back of the book, Catherine said, "Catherine Keller said, Caputo came out of the closet as a theologian, <laughs> and it was it was funny and it was penetratingly true because mm-hmm. I really had reformulated that book with uh, that with a theological thrust in in mind." Um, so yeah, I I am. Uh, Edified to hear that you uh, made that kind of an impact on you because it's it's the one book that I do. Yeah. There were three books. I, I did Radical Hermeneutics was the book where I sort of found my own voice. I had, my first two books were uh, I was still pretty Catholic, and I mean I still consider myself Catholic now, but in such a way that the the Catholic Church would be shocked at my version of Catholicism. But anyway. My my earlier first two books, I was still pretty Catholic, and I was trying to absorb the shock that Heidegger had on me. So, so I had a sort of experience like what you're describing, only it was with Heidegger. Heidegger sort of jolted me out of the, my my early very orthodox Catholic life, and I was trying to come to grips with Heidegger and the, my tradition. So, so one of those books was about Heidegger and Meister Eckhart, and the other was about Heidegger and Aquinas. And um, and they were, if you look stylistically at those books, pretty exegetical. You know, I, I was pretty much explaining what Heidegger meant and what Eckhart meant and how they related and how Aquinas got into all that. 
And there was stuff at the end where I made a certain critical assessment, but mostly it was exegesis. And then it was in radical hermeneutics that for the first time I actually decided to speak my own voice. Hmm. Um, along with exegesis, people who do kind of philosophy are always commenting on somebody. Hmm. You know? uh, but, and they, so they're, they're, they're sort of reinventing some, something that they've read. So originality for, for us always is always a kind of reinvention or reimagination or right. retrieval of something. Um, so, so Radical Hermits was a breakthrough book. Prayers and Tears was a breakthrough book. Uh, and then Weakness of God. I mean, they're the, actually, I would plead my case with the Inquisition to save three of them. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that would be the threat. It's a very <laughs> liberal inquisition. I, I want to get to know those people. <laughs> right. Yeah, you would just hope for a liberal inquisitor. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Well, it's it's interesting even here you talk about you would you be Catholic, but they might they might be shocked. So similarly, I'm Protestant, but they might they might be shocked as well. So I, it's just so interesting how um so many of these roads that many of us are on wind up going through some kind of pseudo heresy or quasi you know you have to be called out it's so so absurd what the institutionalized religion has done to to both sides or all sides of the matter my my friend robin myers has two great books with great titles saving god from religion saving jesus from christianity (laughs) exactly you can't beat those two titles no you can't Well, weakness of God, I underlined so much. I thought the other day, um, geez, I should have just not underlined the stuff I didn't like because now the whole thing is, I have it on Kindle and the whole thing is one basically yellow highlight. So, you know, you kind of lose the effectiveness when you underline everything. So, so it happened to my copy of Being in Time, Heidegger's Being in Time. Okay. Everything, eventually everything got underlined. So I had to keep, I I had several copies of it. So yeah. that I would, so I always had at least one clean copy of it. Yeah. And also, in speaking of Catherine, Catherine Keller has been really influential on me too. I, when I grow up, I want to write like either one of you. That's my plan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you, well, hopefully, you'll fail. And, okay. and then and then you'll be speaking in your own voice. I mean, I always I say that Derrida loosened my tongue. There you go. And it wasn't exactly because I tried to write like Derrida, which uh, I wasn't, but he altered the way I write. And then I, you know, when I, the reason Radical Hermeneus was different from uh, my previous stuff was, it was Derrida. Not, well, you know, not just Derrida, but also Kierkegaard. Stylistically, I mean now, not not in terms of content, but stylistically. Um, so, you know, the people that influence you don't show up in a, as a mirror image. You know, they would, they just sort of kick you uh, yeah. in the butt and get you going right. in a way you didn't realize you were going. Right. And then you, right. you sort of right. find yourself. So I always like to say, Derrida gave me what he didn't have to give, which was my own voice. Interesting. And so, yeah, Ka- Catherine is a, a, a spiritual uh, poet uh, as well as a, a thinker. Mm-hmm. And her right, it reflects, it's reflected in her writing. Mm-hmm. Or a poetic spirit. Yeah, it's it's astonishing what she does. Um, what I, someone said about my writing, 
um, a few years ago, and I never made the connection officially, really, to you until just a couple of days ago. And I was thinking about our time together. But someone said about me that I write about serious things, but I never take myself too seriously. And I loved that compliment. I thought that was a compliment. And I thought of that um, a couple of days ago, reading some of your stuff. And I'm like, oh, I think I think I might have learned a little bit from that, um, from you on that. And, um, and that's what you're saying. Like, yeah, when you emulate, you don't necessarily copy their exact words, but there is a vibe, a tenor, a timbre that you have. Would you relate to that? Do you think that is it? Does that make sense? Like, I think you write about serious things, but you, it seems like you never quite take yourself too seriously. Voice. Yeah. Yeah. No, you hit, you hit the nail on the head there. That's exactly right. But you've already got a voice. I mean, you're the, the, your poetry, it's got a cadence. The thing I had that struck me when I was reading it was the cadence. Mm. And it's American English. You know, you know, that's another thing we have to be careful. I was trying to sound like bad translations of the the German or the French. You know? Yeah, um, it's it, it's a you have a, a, a rhythm in the way you write that mm. is uh, very American. It's very yeah. it's American English, and you say so you've already got it. You don't have to worry about Catherine and me. Well, <laughs> uh, that's kind of you. That's nice of you. When did you, yeah, we're talking about writing. When when did you decide, I think I'm going to put pen to paper or typewriter, uh, keypad, whatever we call it back in the day, to paper? When did you decide, I, I think I'm going to do this and this could be helpful? When for I me. was in high school. Okay. When I was in high school, I, I joined the high school newspaper and uh, discovered that I love to write. And then I... Uh, was influenced by the Catholic religious order that ran the high school. And well, you, you've been reading What to Believe, so you, you see some of that there. And I joined that order, and uh, I was training to be, be, being, it was in formation to be, uh, become a religious teaching brother, and I was going to teach religion, high school religion and English. And then I discovered in the course of that that I, what I really was in love with was philosophy. And I told them that I wanted to, I didn't want to go teach in the high schools. I wanted to go get my PhD and teach in the college. And they said, well, there's this thing called the, the vow of obedience. And the way that works is you don't tell us what you want to do. We tell you what we want you to do. <laughs> so that's when we parted ways, part of friend, on friendly terms. I mean, I still am in touch with this, my, the, the brothers. Um, and... When I, uh, so I was an English major in, in college, trained to, to teach high school English. And then when I began teaching, uh, the uh, requirement was there, steer, staring me in the face to publish. And I didn't even think of it as a, as a requirement. I mean, I just, that's exactly what I wanted to do. So I just yeah. started writing. And it's a, it's a natural uh, imperative for me mm -hmm. and uh when i retired i just kept writing you know in fact that's one of the reasons i retired but the main reason i retired was to be able to devote myself to writing uh, without interruption and i've continued to do that and i as we speak i'm working on you know something else so um it's it's a passion for me it's not just yeah. it, it 
it served me well because it's the way you get tenure and promotion. <laughs> right. But uh, it's, you know, it goes way beyond that. Maybe. Yeah. And for yeah. most, you know, like if you talk to Catherine, I'm sure she'll, she would say exactly the same thing. And for most, for most people who have gone on to write a lot, the, it's passion. Yeah, definitely. For me, it's been a way of discovering what I believe. I'm never really quite sure what I think that I think until I can put it right. on the screen and move it around and and play yeah. with the words a little bit. Yeah, something yeah. really important Absolutely. about that. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, well, when, you know, when we were in the rest of life, we had to do, we had a, a half an hour every day of meditation. We had to sit there, you know, and sort of or kneel um, and sort of close our eyes and meditate and do that. I mean, I could do that for like four minutes and I'd get distracted and I'd find myself thinking of the next thing that I was going to do that day. And I, I look back on it now and I thought, you know, if they had given me a, a, a pen and paper, I, you know, I I could have I could have meditated in writing, and I wouldn't have lost yeah. my 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 attention wouldn't have wandered because it's it's you know the, our thinking is embedded in our writing, and and even uh, I I even think that um, writing can, is a is a form of prayer. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of meditative prayer. It's not mm-hmm. petitionary prayer, but it's a, it's a kind of meditative prayer. There's a prayerfulness about it. You know, a prayerfully thinking, writing, meditating. Um, so yeah. it's, it's just it's just writing. What's what's been the? Um, I wasn't planning to talk about writing for long, but I'm curious. What's been in the the discipline of writing, the craft of writing? What has been the most challenging uh, part for you? Aspect of it. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of anything. I mean, I guess I, always I stumped that. John Caputo. <laughs> I mean, when you start, you know, you've got a blank page in front of you. There's always that. And people yeah. get writer's cramp. I have no experience of ever having writer's cramp. I mean, I sort of have the opposite. I have to, I have to sort of moderate and keep, 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 keep the length of the things I write down. Um, I mean, my, my line is I keep, writing until I think of something to say. And, and it's true. I mean, you, I mean, when I, when I have something to, I often, I, I, not often, but I, I would sometimes accept invitations to do things that I had no business accepting. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I did it because it was, I thought this, this will be an interesting exploration. And, um, but then when, when you do accept something like that, there's that blank, Blank piece of paper. Well, now we say blank screen. Yeah. And there's that. But then I just start, you know, I just start writing. I just start yeah. talking. I just start saying something. Yeah. And and I, I do a very great deal of rewriting. Now, I must say that I do a lot more rewriting now than I used to. I, I, I wrote a little book called Philosophy and Theology. And it's just, it's just a teeny little thing. It's, you know, it's somewhere in about 75 pages. And I wrote that in about two weeks and I just wrote it. I just went right through it and I knew what I wanted to say and it just came right out. And I did very little revision of it. And I could do that when I was younger. I, I, I can't do that now. Hmm. I, I, I have to do more rewriting now. When I was, we're, we're putting together my, uh, my uh, collected 
uh, articles and uh, and uh, book book chapters. Who's the guy on the front? Who's the guy on the front of that cover? But <laughs> well, you know that's right. What we're doing is it's going over the whole span of my lifetime. Wow. So we took a picture from each stage of my life. Okay. So like here's here's volume one. Oh my! Look at that handsome man. <laughs> that's me. That I was thirty. I was thirty-three years old. Unbelievable. Moment. Fifty years ago. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so, what was I saying? I, I don't remember I what we're saying. Point. I was just going to comment that I often tell people writing really is rewriting. Writing is, is, rewriting? is rewriting is what it really is. Anyone can sit down and write for a little bit, but the rewriting part is the really, that's the really challenging part. And the, and also the um, fun part. I, yeah, well, that's what I think. It's the fun part. It's, it's, it's so much easier. I find it's easier to rewrite and to sharpen things up than to actually get it out the first mm -hmm. time. That's mm -hmm. probably the hard part, getting it out the first time, which I could do more easily. Oh, I know. I could do that a whole lot more easily when I was young. When I look back, as, we're, as we put these volumes together, when I look back at stuff that I've written 30, 50 years ago, I can say, I, I, was, I was faster on my feet then. You know, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not quite sure that I could do that anymore. <laughs> so I have to do more rewrite. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I have more craft in the sense that I have no more tricks. Right. But uh, I, when I was younger, I, I had more uh, free floating imagination and sort of, sort of wilder. Um, and I would write too much. I would write too, you know, I did too many adjectives and too many sentences, and you said it four times and <laughs> like that. That's and, the that's and parentheses. You're not opposed to putting things in parentheses. No, I love parentheses and dashes. <laughs> when I had an English teacher in college uh, who was profoundly and deeply opposed to dashes. You know, he could <laughs> he considered that just blasphemy. <laughs> and I saw him at a reunion uh, some years ago, and I told him. Brother Joseph, the same was. I said, Brother Joseph, I must say, I, I have ignored your instructions about <laughs> your admonitions about dashes. I love dashes. <laughs> was he forgiving or? No, no, he thought that was an abuse. Abusive. <laughs> that was That's a betrayal. Funny. Well, tell me about. Uh, it's not in what to believe as much, but you're a you're a Jacques Derrida person. Um, uh, by the way, I'm a I'm a Rene Girard guy so um i i want to get in derrida i just i just spent so much time with gerard and other things i haven't got got there too much yet but um you know deconstruction is the concept he's famous for it's all over the church airwaves so to speak it's it's all over if you search for deconstruction on podcasts you could listen for days um tell What's me it, what is it yeah. is it sound is it just sort of uh Jargon, or are they? Do you think they know what they mean? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I was going to try to ask you a similar kind of a question. Um, I don't, I don't know if you if you've recognized how much people are talking about deconstruction, but no, my take is that most of them have. Um, I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but most of them have no idea who Jacques Derrida is and where the idea uh, kind of came from. 
Yeah, I, I, most, I mean, Derrida is formidably difficult to read, right? I mean, you yeah. need, he, he writes for other academics and specialists, and he's quite challenging. And, you know, I, uh, he's hard for even people who understand him already to, uh, to understand. <laughs> Uh, so it's okay that they, they haven't read much of that. I mean, I, I and when they, when people will say to me, "Could you get, what, what's something he did that uh, you know is easy to read?" And I said, "Nothing. There isn't anything." <laughs> easy. The only thing you, you can read the best the best things to read if you want to get started is uh, when you like now when you were if, when he was being interviewed in English. Mm. When he's being interviewed in French, he'll kill you. I mean, he he can do somersaults in French, but when if you interviewed him in English, he was pretty clear. So like, they can be forgiven for not having read a lot of Jacques Derrida. I'll tell you, I've, I've looked at some of it, Jonathan. I, I know what you're saying because I've, I've noticed the words around a lot. And uh, um, the main thing that you, you know, I look for is, are they, do they mean it to simply mean, are they, do they use it to simply mean critique and break something down, which is not what it means or it's not all that it means. Uh, or do they mean that, to reinvent something, to rewrite it, to to sort of feel around for the tensions inside something, and then release those tensions and bring bring them forward? And so, so do, do they mean it when if they talk about deconstructing the church? Do they mean to just a negative critique of the church, or do they mean moving the church forward? And yeah. My limited experience with what I've been, with what I see online, is times that's what they mean. They mean reinvention, re, re, redescription, not just simply flat out criticism. But that's always that's the most common. That's the way it's sort of been been assimilated into popular discourse as a way to criticize something, right, or knock it down, right, which is. You know, probably it's because it's in. Uh, it's, I've, I've mentioned it several times in my books that the word actually goes back to Luther. It goes back to the Heidelberg Disputation when he's talking about de deconstructing the or destroying. His his word is destructio. Hmm. Um, the theology of glory hmm. in the light of the theology of the cross. So he wants to, and he's he's actually quoting First uh, First Corinthians one, which is itself quoting Isaiah. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. So it goes from the Hebrew to the Septuagint to Luther's Latin to Heidegger, who took the word up from Luther, because Heidegger, when he converted from Catholicism to Lutheranism. Uh, got deeply into Luther, seriously read Luther. Heidegger took the word from Luther and used it in his uh, early 1919 to 1923 lectures on what he called the hermeneutics of facticity as a way of destroying, in the Lutheran sense, the theology of glory, namely metaphysics, in the light of the theology of the cross, namely the herm hermeneutics of facticity, factical existence. And then Derrida was writing about Heidegger, and he comes to this word in French, it says destruction, and he says destruction ou des 
construction. It's a, it's he's just in the course of commenting on Heidegger. It's it's a parenthetical remark, or the deconstruction, which goes back to Heidegger, which goes back to Luther, which goes back to Paul, which goes back to Isaiah. And so it's a great word. It's yeah. a great word. Uh, there's a young man named, or he's not a young man now, but he was a young man in, in 1997 named John Van Buren, teaches uh, philosophy at uh, uh, Fordham University, wrote a book called The Young Heidegger, in which he, he laid that out, that that's where that came, came. It came from the Heidelberg Disputation. So it's a word that means recover in Luther. It means recover the living gospel of the New Testament from underneath the the superstructure of Aristotelian metaphysics and scholastic uh, theology. And in Heidegger, it means recover the, the, the life of uh, practical, that existential, phenomenological life underneath the history of metaphysics. And in Derrida, it, 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 it came to mean reading a text metic meticulously to see the tensions that are driving that text and and what's going on behind the back of the author of that text and releasing those tensions and allowing that thing to reduplicate, to re reinvent itself um, and repeat itself. Mm. Repetition in French uh, all is what you do in a rehearsal. It's the, it's the word for rehearsal when, you know, when you're rehearsing, when the orchestra is rehearsing. Repetition. And that's what deconstruction is, is a repetition in that sense. It's a rehearsal for, for an act that is never complete, right? It's, it's just always the, the it's, what's, it's got in mind something which does not and cannot exist, which is the undeconstructable. The undeconstructible um, is what we desire, what we, what we love, what we pray and weep over, which is where that was my entree to the religious dimension of deconstruction. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not so simply a literary exercise and it's not simply literary hermeneutics. It's actually talking about a desire beyond desire for something uh, I know not what. Right? So it's, instead of, our desires are never satisfied, but in, in, instead of seeing that as a defeat in deconstruction, that's a, an emphasis, it's an energy. Uh, when you when you stop desiring, the only thing to do is call the funeral director. <laughs> the desire is life. Life is desire, and deconstruction is a desire for what he calls very biblically the possibility of the impossible. It it has this uh, religious dimension, which he himself, with some hesitation, eventually called messianic. Messianic without a Messiah. He didn't want to use the word Messianic at first uh, because it was openly theological. It's also associated with a lot of crazy people. And uh, it's, uh, but he, he, I think, I think Walter Benjamin, Walter ben Benjamin looks like in English, Walter Benjamin. Um, I think that loosened his tongue about using the word. So this, it's this Messianic. Uh, expectation. So, so all the stuff in deconstruction about, like, like that. Right, I would say that, that what's interesting about here, here's this really good, good, good example of how this thing works. Husserl, 
who the master of, of them all in continental philosophy. You know, you you say Husserl and you look up to heaven and you say, "Blessed be his name." <laughs> you know, he's the he's the father of continental philosophy, contemporary continental philosophy. Husserl has wrote this incredibly complicated book called the Logical Investigations. Just two volumes of killer prose and just tedious micrological distinctions. Anyway, it's a theory of language in, in part. And he said, he says, he says, uh, signs. The, the characteristic of sign is that it operates in the absence of the signified. Hmm. We we use signs when the signified is not around. And um, but he said the point, the the teleological purpose of the sign is fulfillment. That that you talk about Budapest and you read about Budapest, but the fulfillment of the word Budapest is to go to Budapest and walk the streets. Um, so signs are teleologic oriented towards their fulfillment or what he called presence. Um, and there it is. No, 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 no. He said the, the value of the sign is precisely its capacity to operate in the absence of fulfillment. Mm. That it's 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 freedom from fulfillment. It's freedom for presence. Why? Because he's his critics say, because he's a nihilist and he's against uh, the reality and he's an anti-realist and he wants to lock us up inside of a prison house of words. No, 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 no. What he the the absence of the signified, the signifier functioning in the absence of its fulfillment, is. The empty chair of Elijah. It's messianic. It's the hope, the expectation for the future. Possibility that it will be new, that it will be different than possibility of being otherwise. Possibility of the impossible. Yes. So the thing has a religious or messianic uh, energy to it. Yeah. And um, that was, that's, that's what it is. I truly, truly think that's what it is. I also think that the word deconstruction itself gets in the way. Yeah, you know, you kind of a negative. I had a friend. Yeah. I had a friend who was a named Joseph Margolis. He was a very distinguished analytic philosopher who insisted on describing his position as relativism. And you, and after you spent two hours arguing with him about what uh, relativism was, you realize it wasn't relativism that he was talking about. It was hermeneutics. It was a theory of interpretation. There are no uninterpreted facts of the matter. Everything is a matter of interpretation. But some interpretations are better than others. And he said, well, it's relativism. It's not. I said, I said, call it relativism, but you're, you're going to waste two hours of everybody's time finding out that that's not actually what you mean. And and I think the word deconstruction is like that. You, you waste a, so much time explaining what it does not mean. I mean, I don't know what the alternative would have been, but it was a word that caught fire. Yeah, like that's the pro it. it's just a word that caught fire. And I I think that, um, uh, right, what you said at the beginning, there's there's two different camps in the, and some you overuse it too much and think it's a negative, bad thing. But the essence of it is really beautiful. And if anyone's listening uh, who wants to dive deeper into it, I would just encourage them to read John Caputo on Derrida. One of the things that you said in The Weakness of God, um, I think that's what it was in, um, you referenced his work, The Force of Law, and you said that he made it plain that deconstruction is not a matter of leveling laws in order to produce a lawless society, but of deconstructing laws in order to produce a just society 
I think American Christianity stops at the first thing and they just think they just kind of panic and I've done it too. So I'm not suggesting it's just all them, but when we think about, you know, bringing things down, it, it, there's a, there's a level of anxiety that sets in, especially with the institutionalized folks and they never get to the second part, which is the justice part, the impossible call that's coming at us, which is so, so beautiful. Yeah. That, that particular essay is uh, a pretty good one for getting, when people say, what can I read these written? And I said, well, read the, read the, read the, read the interviews, but if, Powerful. I was one time invited to do a, a thing with a, um, a faculty, Was a, a college was having their uh, the orientation first, beginning of the year orientation, and there was a freshman orientation for the incoming students, but there was also a faculty orientation to get everybody back in the back in the, you know, sort of batting practice, get ready for the, the, the season. And so they would invite an outside speaker in and uh, to, to give a little initial talk and give the faculty something to read over the summer. And then he would come in and do this thing about what, what, what they read and have a discussion. So they invited me to do it. And they said they'd like to hear something about deconstruction. And so could they have a text of Derrida? So I, I chose that one, course of law. So, so we get there. I get there. We get ready with things. That they introduce me, and and my first sentence, the first thing I say is, I chose this particular text of Derrida because of its clarity, and the room erupted in laughter. I mean, it, it was just like we had only five minutes for the laughter to <laughs> subside. You know, people holding their sides. You know, <laughs> you know they thought this thing was a, the, the most dense thing that ever laid eyes on. That's good. But I still do think that, relatively speaking, it's actually a, a paradigmatic text. I mean, he that's where he lays out that law and justice thing. He had been invited to the uh, uh, Cordoza Law School, which okay. is right next door to the new school in, in Manhattan, uh, upper Manhattan. And uh, his friend, Drusilla Cornell, who just, just died about a year ago, uh, invited him to give a lecture on uh, deconstruction and justice. And, and it was a sort of challenge, you know, like because of what you're saying, people thought it was a destructive breaking things down. Uh, so would, would you please come in and give, tell us what's the relationship between deconstruction and justice? And so that paper was given to a law school, very progressive left-wing law school. And that is the first time that I can find, and I, you know, I looked, that he ever used the word undeconstructible. Mm -hmm. He had never, if you had asked a, a, a Derrida person back in the 1970s, is there anything undeconstructible? You'd say, no, absolutely not. That would be the transcendental signified. So that would be the absolute, the, the eternal metaphysics. <laughs> There's nothing undeconstructible. And so Derrida talked about the undeconstructible but then, of course, he said, Siliana, if there is such a thing. Mm. And, of course, there is not. But that's precisely what's um, so powerful for him about the undeconstructible. It does not exist. And it's like the Messiah, a Messiah, who never shows up. So because if the Messiah ever shows up, then, you know, it's over. Then history has been fulfilled and it's over. So the, the very openness of history requires that the Messiah never show up. 
Right? That, so the undigestible does not exist. Why? Because it's a desire. It's an aspiration. It's a prayer. It's a prayer, I think. And if it, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, the logic justice also. Is, and just as it, it would, it, see, he didn't say love. I mean, he does actually talk about love, but but he's Jewish. And he's, he's that's his memory of God is in that word, justice. Mm-hmm. And um, it's it's the name of God. Is justice. Mm-hmm. It's a prophetic name. So he, so he doesn't have, the, you know, he's not thinking about the Gospel of John. He's thinking about the prophets. It's in the back of his head. I call it his, his memory of God. Mm-hmm. Just the notion of the, the undeconstructability of justice is his memory of God. That's fascinating. Well, I was just going to comment too that also logically, at least from my open and relational theological framework, if if a thing does show up. If it if it does show up in its fullness, that's great. But but time and life is relational, so things change anyhow. So it's here for a moment, and then okay, we're on to the next moment. You know, so it's an impossibility yeah. for a thing to be entirely completely consummated. I guess that's right. Yeah, it would be. It would be the. I mean, the, you know, in religious literature, you'll see you'll, you'll sometimes see someone say, "This is this is how God is acting in our times." But tomorrow is will be different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's what's wrong with the, the Catholic understanding of tradition. They don't, they think of tradition as the past and as as canonized, instead of thinking of transition. Tradition is simply the way God is acting in our times, hmm. and in, in times going by, and the present time, and the times to come. In, in all of those cases. You can have the notion of God acting in our times, but it doesn't mean the same thing. It just means something different. In fact, it has to mean something different because it's it has to be constant motion. If it's like a plant, you know, if it stopped growing, that would mean it's dead. Right. And um, yeah, so tradition is a, is a mobile idea, and to be faithful to the tradition, Derrida the, the once said uh, at Villanueva, actually said. Uh, he said, I'm a, a very conservative uh, the philosopher. <laughs> Everybody left. And he said, no, 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 I'm serious. Because the only way to preserve a tradition and conserve a tradition is to deconstruct it, mm. is to keep it open, alive. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, well, Christ- Christianity is the memory and the hope of Jesus. And so, and that's constantly altering. It's constantly changing. It doesn't, you say, what's the essence of Christianity? It doesn't have an essence. It has a history. Christianity uh, is the memory and the hope of Jesus. Is that what you just said? Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's that's nice. Uh, Well, in your your newest book, um, you talk a lot about... um, the problem that we have either going with naturalism or supernaturalism. So maybe why don't you take a second and explain what those positions are and uh, how you're trying to find a middle way. Um, yeah, I, I am of a mind that um, the, the, the most serious mis- mistake that, that religion and theology make uh, the, the, it's the most serious 
misunderstanding, self-misunderstanding, is to think of it as self as having supernatural uh, origins, by which I mean a in some inbreaking revel- revelation uh, from a transcendent being, so that uh, something is revealed to us that no human could have, only God could have thought of these things. We we could have never thought of it. Um, instead of, and I, and I call that supernatural, the, the notion of something celestial or uh, supra-temporal, supra-spatial. It's, it's, it's a, a notion that was developed in patristic theology for the first time and then uh, took off from there. Um, I think that's a misunderstanding of um, revelation. I don't, I'm not against revelation. I think that's a misunderstanding of revelation. Um, I, I think that... Uh, what we have in the history of religions and Christianity among them is a history of people who you know, pull the pants on one leg at a time or who have what Heidegger calls factical existence. They, they are born of Adam and Eve. They are people of flesh and blood, historically uh, bound, culturally bound, bound to a body, a time, a place, a culture, a history, a language. Giving expression to something that has touched them in a way that they cannot quite formulate and conceptualize and nail down. Something something, uh, of, uh, Telic likes to say, uh, something of unconditional import has laid hold of them, seized hold of them. And they are giving expression to that. So uh, it is of the utmost importance to see that 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 is nothing arbitrary and capricious and merely subjective or aesthetic. It is a work of creative imagination, powerful creative imagination, in which we give imaginative figurative form and it's not arbitrary because if it's arbitrary and capricious, it will, nobody will, it won't catch on. Nobody will sign on to it. It has to, it has to be a, what uh, Gadamer would call a classic. I mean, it has to be something of enduring importance, enduring power. The constantly, always able to speak to us again and again and again. But it's 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 a work of imaginative creation, product, the productive imagination. Um, which is not acting arbitrarily, but acting under the impulse of something that, that has seized them, something that's transformed. And it gives transforming uh, figure to that experience. So, you know, Feuerbach, I say Feuerbach's half right. You know, it is a projection, but it's a projection by something of something by which we have been previously injected. Or to use the language of computers, it's spirit in, spirit out, right? It's inspiration, but it's it's a it's a an inspiration that takes place in time and space and language and body and gender and all that culture. There's nothing from some other order breaking in and revealing something to us. I, I was reading something the other day. This someone is very 
Orthodox Catholic, said that the story of the prodigal son is, that's so profound that no human being could have thought of that story. That's silly. You know, that's a silly thing to say. No, <laughs> no human being could have, only God could have thought of this story. <laughs> it's about fathers and sons and ungrateful sons and jealous sons. and It's completely, utterly, totally human story, right? But there's something fine about it, right? There's, there's something there of uh, imperishable beauty in that story. And I think that's what religious uh, works are. So I say um, the, the distinction we should make is not between natural and supernatural, but between the prosaic and the poetic. So I don't distinguish between the Jesus of history and the, and the Christ of faith. I distinguish between the Jesus of historical critical study, which is the prose of history, and the poem, which is called the kingdom of God, of which Jesus is the poet. And he eventually became the poem. And by the fourth century, he was the poem, not, not the poet. Um, but that's the distinction. They, in, the, in, in space and time, they killed him. And, he, and he, he, he spoke truth to power, and it cost him his life. In the, in the prose of history, but in... The poetics of the New Testament, they killed him and he would not stay dead. And he healed the lame and he uh, changed water into wine and he raised the daughter of Jairus and all that. And that. That is a work of productive poetic imagination. It's a memory of Jesus. Christianity is the, the memory of whoever he was. Um, we don't know a lot about who he was. What we know, we don't, as Derrida would put it, we don't have the archaic, we have the archive. Mm -hmm. the, the New Testament is not the archaic. Mm -hmm. The New Testament is the archive of, of his memory. And it's been worked over, and, you know, all kinds of stuff happened to it. I mean, if we, if we really had the archive, we'd have about a thousand different Gospels and all spread out all over the second century and knew nothing like what eventually got canonized under, literally under imperial command. Um, okay. And then this institutionalized according to the order of Diocletian, not to the order of the New Testament. Um, so on the one hand, we don't want to supernaturalize Jesus because that, that I think is to mystify him, to reify, uh, a, a poetic figuration. He, he, Jesus is a powerful imaginative figure in which we catch sight of something divine. We have an, we, we have an intuition of God in, in this figure. He is a mediator. He is... You can't talk about the unconditional period. You can only talk about the unconditional insofar as it's expressed and uh, manifested um, in paradigmatic figures. And Jesus is our, he's our paradigm, uh, our intuition of what is going on in the name of God. But on the other hand, so on the other hand, if you want to suspend the supernaturalism, you also want to suspend naturalism. Because the naturalistic thing is to just simply reduce him to this guy who walked 
that the streets of dusty roads of Galilee, and period. And the rest is just fiction. The rest is just fancy, illusion, uh, superstition. What's well, not that? And it is, it is literature. I mean, nat naturalizing Jesus is like somebody going to see a performance of Hamlet and, say, and walking out saying, this is ridiculous. There are no ghosts. This is just crazy stuff. This is just illusion. And furthermore, there, there really actually was an historical Den, pr Danish prince. I don't know if his name was actually Hamlet, but, but Shakespeare had somebody in mind when he was writing this. There was some historical figure there. And the relationship between him and Hamlet, you know, was pretty loose, right? So, so an historian sees Hamlet and says, dismisses this as just fiction. And an, a, a physicist dis, dis, dismisses their superstition because there's no such thing as ghosts. Okay. That, I would say, is a bad reading of Hamlet. <laughs> the, the, a naturalistic reading of Hamlet is nonsense, right? Well, I think that's exactly the naturalistic criticism of religious, of the New Testament or of any religious tradition is nonsense. It's just a misunderstanding. It's an inability to read. So you need to protect these figures from both naturalism on the one hand and supernaturalism on the other hand. And then what do you have? Well, then you have what the the book that I'm writing right now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thematizing the notion of you have theopoetics. It's not just, it's poetics, but it's a, it's a poetics where the, the central uh, organizing icon is the name of God. It's what I mean. What's important about Jesus is that he's an in that he provides us with an insight into the what's going on in the name of God. The visible image of uh, the invisible thing. Yeah. yeah, that's right. He's an icon. Yeah, um, but it's it's an icon for which we need no supernaturalism to to mystify and no naturalism to demystify. We, we it, it, because we it's it is a very profound form of literature which uh, has the power to turn our heads. And so the revelatory power is the revelatory power of any great or important work of art. Mm. It, it, change, it changes your life. You, just, uh, you, you see something which is head-turning. The last shall be first. You know, the outsiders are in. The rich will have to pass through the head of a needle. It's a head-turning vision of, of, of life. You don't find it in philosophy. You don't, you never knew, no Greek philosopher ever talked like that. Aristotle never talked like that. Plato. They were, they, they were uh, you know, men of common sense and hard, hard reason. They, they didn't talk about the madness of the figure of the kingdom of God. It's a, it's, it's its own... Uh, Powerful, striking, head-turning form of life, which is neither history nor fiction. Hmm. And it's it's the it's theopoetic, and that and and then I I also go on to say I, I, that the what I'm saying about Jesus, I would also say about God too, because I don't think that God is that the name of God is picking up a being somewhere. Right. I think it's picking out something of unconditional import. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, 
the central icon in 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 that theopoetics. And all of this is not just simply going to the theater and observing uh, a play or attending a play, because it's 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 demanding something of us. It's asking something of us. I mean, we're we're part of this picture. What the name of God is, I, I like to say God does not exist, God insists. God, I like to say that too. God, and then sometimes the I name, even quote you. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Tell them where they can buy the book. That's right. It, it's the name of a call to which we should be a response. And so in the language of theopoetics, you would say, well, it's asking, this theopoetics is asking us to make our own lives into a work of art, into a poem, into a theo poem, a, a poiesis, a poema is the product of a poiesis. And, and so it's asking us to make our lives into a, a poem. So it's, it's serious business. It's, it's, and it's, it's, uh, uh, needs to be kept safe and protected and done no injury by naturalism and supernaturalism uh, because it's because of its, its own intrinsic uh, power to uh, change things. If it were just purely pri private fancy, you know, Jesus would have lived to a ripe old age, you know, and so would Martin Luther King. And, and it, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's 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 a it's a theopoetic formation of life changing importance and and import. So there's nothing subjectivistic about it. The naturalism is and this is a problem with the left. The the left doesn't understand. It, the left has reduced religion to the religious right. Yeah, and it thinks it's it's just craziness. You know, it's, it's forgotten Martin Luther King. It's forgotten the. the um, revolutionary power of the theopoetic or uh, this, this religious imaginary. It's an imaginary. The religious imaginary, the imaginaries are important. Democracy is an imaginary. Democracy is a dream, which people actually would be. Martin Luther King's dream, right? He talked about a dream. That dream was not mere onericism. It was, it was revolutionary. So that's what I mean by by suspending the natural and the supernatural to get at what. And so then the title of the book, what do we, the title of the book was, what can we really believe? Actually, the original title of the book was 12 Brief Lessons in Radical Theology. And Columbia said, that's really boring. You know, you, you must let that be the subtitle. What we need is, a, we need a title. Let that be the subtitle. They said, okay, well, what, I, what the question I'm asking is, what can we really believe? And then they took that and then they shortened it to what to believe mm. with a big question mark. I said, well, you make sure that question mark is clear. <laughs> I don't want people to think I'm telling them what to believe. Um, but that's what the book is. The book is, what is it you really believe? You don't really believe in um, the ancient Athenians didn't really believe in Athena. I mean, maybe some of them did, but what, what's really going on in that form of life is precisely a form of life. 
So, so what we really believe has to do with a deeper faith, which is which runs deeper than 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 beliefs. Beliefs are sort of the stuff that's in our head because of where of an accident of birth. We talk about the gift of faith, and really, it's an accident of birth. Because if you were switched at birth, right, with somebody from the heart of Islam, you never so much as heard the name of Jesus. Well, then, what you're really you'd have a different set of beliefs in your head. But what you really believe in some deep sense, faith in a deeper sense than beliefs, it wouldn't be altered. You know, you you. I'm not saying all the forms of life are the same, but I am saying that there's there's something that runs deeper than beliefs. Beliefs are beliefs are um, what's in your head in virtue of a, of an accident of birth, and they give form. I mean, you mm -hmm. need them; mm -hmm. otherwise, you'd be dealing with be vacuous. They, they give form and figure to um, what's in our heart. Um, but but to start codifying them and then arguing about you know the details of these things. I mean, when when I listen to when I look at those, uh, I mean, the stuff I grew up on as a Catholic was all the, the councils, you know, the Greek fathers and the debates about the Trinity and the incarnation and the distinction between person and nature and all that stuff. Okay, now you know what it reminds me of. This sort of sounds sort of cynical, but it's you know I don't mean it to be cynical. It reminds me of like a Star Trek uh, uh, convention. And they're all arguing, you know, about how, how, how you could do these things and how you could beam them up, Scotty, and how would that actually work? You know? <laughs> That's what that sounds like to me right now. Uh, I mean, you're, 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 it's like, are you about how the, uh, how a ghost could actually have appeared to Hamlet. I mean, well, that, yeah. or one of my favorite examples is Jane Eyre. At the very end of Jane Eyre, when Jane hears Mister Rochester calling to her from the distance, you know, and nobody could have heard that voice, right? And so she's too far away to hear. He's saying, "Jane, Jane," and she knows it's Mister Rochester, right? Well, it's like, well, how could she actually have heard that? You think like maybe the wind was blowing, you know? It's like, <laughs> Don't you know how to read a book? Yeah, <laughs> yeah you say that, I think, in this. I don't know where you say that. If you want to learn how to read the New Testament, learn how to read a story. That's, that's true. That's what you're talking about. I think you, uh, yeah, I think you help us do that really well. And I hope people are listening to what you just said. That was, that was really, yeah, that was really good. Thank you. I have a bunch of other questions, but I don't want to miss what you just did and we've already been going over an hour so it's um okay well uh, we maybe we could do it again some other book i do it when the theopatic poetics book comes out we can talk yeah. about that one let's do it although you, you just got me. a little preview of it you call me or email me anytime and uh we will have a chat and i look forward to i look forward to more in our friendship man okay well, it's been a pleasure uh, meeting. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> and good luck with all with this stuff. This is do these podcasts are the way to do it. It's the way to get there. Well, yeah, um, I'm still old fashioned. Write books, publish them, you know, and proofread them, and do all that. But what this is the way to communicate. Right now. Yeah, it's it's just there's just one of the many different ways, and this is one of them. So it's important. Yeah. 
It is. Technology is crazy sometimes. And then other times, like here, it's like, this is really great. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a poison cure. It's a poison cure. It's a Derrida yeah. solution of the pharmacon. Uh, it really is true. It was a prophetic analysis. It's exactly what this stuff is. But what you're doing is uh, yeah. enormously important. And keep, 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 at, keep on keeping on. All right, my friend. Well, we'll talk to you later. And, uh, I just really appreciate it, man. All my best. Good, good to talk to you, John. Well, geez, that was a lot of fun. Really, really glad to have had him on. I hope you'll look up The Weakness of God, Theology of the Event, or any of his other books, including his latest one, What to Believe, 12 Brief Lessons, in Radical Theology. So thanks to Dr. Jack, and thanks to you for listening. Peace, everybody. Have a great week.